This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Again, to the BNE uh, IntelliNews podcast. Um, today, I'm joined by eminent professor Dr. Axel Schneider, who's the head of the Synology faculty in the uh, German University of Göttingen. And full disclosure, he's actually my brother-in-law as well. But uh, <laughs> given the changes that's going on, given Xi Jinping's uh, visit to to Moscow and the huge reaction that caused, followed very shortly by Macron's visit to Beijing and the roasting he's getting over that, um, me as a Russia watcher, this is, you know, we, we follow Russia, we follow China, but at a very superficial level. I mean, from my perspective so far, it's all been Belt and Road, which boiled down to infrastructure deals, trains, um, and then in Central Europe, the same, but it's mainly sort of investment into things like car batteries, factories, and what have you. However, it seems to me that she's uh, three days that he spent with Putin in Moscow was purely political. It was taking China up to a new and I'm struggling to get my head around China. Suddenly, I have to understand more about it. And as a Russia watcher, we really don't know that much about it. So I've invited um, Axel to just give us a, an explainer of what's going on and how he sees things. So Axel, like, let's start with the she visit to Moscow and then again Macron in, uh, in Beijing with von der Leyen. And would you agree with me? I mean, isn't this like an overtly political move that we haven't seen before that, you know, China has effectively challenged the US claim to have the control, the hegemony over the world and that they're challenging the US and saying, no, no, we're more interested in a multipolar world and we defy you and we're gonna be friends with Putin simply because he wants the same thing. Well, first of all, I have to start with the usual disclaimer. <clears throat> I'm not <clears throat> in IR and I'm on that level, um, nothing but a, let's say, well-informed China watcher because my own research is in late imperial history and philosophy. Um, but starting with your initial statement, I mean, it is, it's not even a policy of China to challenge the US and its vision of the globe. Uh, China is in a geographic, geostrategic and economic position where it has no choice. It's just simply too big. So I think any Chinese government, even those who before Xi Jinping did not openly challenge US hegemony, even those governments were really very aware, well aware of their of the challenge they are facing. And the challenge is to enter this global balance of power um, with increasing economic and military power without um, rocking the boat in which they are sitting themselves. Uh, and so you're saying to, to some extent it's been forced into this because you know it's been developing, it's been growing at whatever it is, six, eight percent, and it's got to the size now where it's sort of encroaching on the rest of the world to the point where it's caused a reaction and this is a self-preservation thing? Well, I think it is It is simply unavoidable. I mean, China is on a global level what Germany is on a continental level in Europe. It is too big to not count. Yeah. Um, so um, the Germans have had this problem where since the, the end of World War II of finding a self-understanding a position in Europe 
that is doing justice to our own history and at the same time just simply taking into account our power our size or and the american and the, same. the american seeing it as a rival as a challenge i mean that's simply a function it's not something that china wants to do it's something as you say it's got so big that the americans are seeing it increasingly as threatening and they're reacting to simply its development is, is that the way to frame it well i think it's a factor it's one factor a factor is very important um it is China by definition is a challenge to whoever is perceiving himself herself as a global power. Mm. That's just a fact of size and economic and military power this country has by now. And on top of that, we have a change in the um, foreign policy of China, um, starting with Xi Jinping, the latest, where this um, initial policy going back to Deng Xiaoping of of taking it easy, a low profile, don't challenge the West openly. Um, well, this has been, has been abandoned. China's openly challenging US dominance, global dominance. And their argument is um, at least currently not one in favor of a, another unipolar world with China as the center, but they are arguing in favor of a multipolar world. And then from that perspective, they're they are kind of should be the natural allies of Europe because <laughs> yeah. Europe isn't happy with uh, US hegemony either. So um, that's a very tricky situation. And you can see now, I mean, uh, Macron was just the end of a long list of people going to China. It was started with Scholz and then the Spanish prime minister went and then a few other Germans went and now Macron went and um, all basically, well, as, as I see it with an, all, part of the European attempt to make the Chinese play a more active role in the in the conflict with the with between Russia and the Ukraine, uh, active Indeed. in the sense of trying to negotiate some kind of peace settlement, because China is again by definition in the kind of best position to do so. Because have, I mean, they they've got Putin's ear, yeah. I mean, to, to, to focus in on that, I, I saw the relationship uh, US-China as uh, rivalry, um, competition through rivalry, and then mm -hmm. Europe's described as competition through cooperation. And Macron's getting roasted for, quote unquote, undercutting you know, the West, um, their, their opposition to China. But he was saying very specifically, look, we're not conceding China's right to take Taiwan. We're not conceding anything. What we're hmm. doing is we're saying Europe should have its own foreign policy and that the Americans seem to be wanting to accelerate the conflict and we should slow it down or at least make our own decision. We should have our own policy rather than just following America wherever it wants to go. Do yes. you buy well, I think um, I'm not so sure what um, Macron's policy actually is. I haven't followed that too closely. And his remarks about Taiwan are not very clear. I mean, hmm. It's not conceding anything, but well, you cannot concede, it's not concede, depending on what you do in the end. So he, he I don't I don't have an I don't have a position on that. But um <clears throat> that he is getting roasted, um, of course, is due to the fact that um at least uh, European mainstream media in the last uh, 12, 14 months have to a astonishingly large degree followed the US line. Mm -hmm. um, not realizing that 
the US line is actually going against what has been European, European policy for some two decades. That is to not accept US unipolar hegemony. Um, and um, this might be because of them having not prepared for what is coming, maybe not having seen it coming, which was, which would be surprising if they wouldn't mm -hmm. have seen it. Um, but they, they are obviously, um, the public opinion currently is by and large following the US line of defending freedom in the Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, well, that's um, one way of seeing it, and um, the Ukrainians see it like that, and um, I have sympathy for that. Yeah. The US is not doing it for that reason. <laughs> yeah, you've mentioned several times unipolar, multipolar, um, and to me, obviously, this is one of the, the key things that unites Russia and China in so much as Putin's been going on about multipolar for a decade. Yes. And he, he, he doesn't accept the, the US's right to, to have this um, hegemony to, to get to other countries. Specifically, he's, he's objected to things like, you know, US-backed democracy, NGOs working in Moscow, which he says is the fifth column that Russia is a sovereign nation and should have its own ideas, um, its own way of doing that. It doesn't need to have other people's ideas imported. But yes. Xi Jinping also has talked about multipolar and so am I correct in, in saying that you, you believe that China actually fundamentally doesn't want a conflict with the US? It would rather have, you know, this harmonious world where, you know, we can agree to disagree on things, but basically leave us alone. We're going to run our own country. We don't want to go into conflict with you. Well, I think that would be too simple um, to see it like that. Um, let me first start with clarifying one thing, because we're living in times when not taking clear side is seen by both sides as being your and their enemy. <laughs> um, you must have, you must have take sides uh, nowadays. I mean, me putting this into the kind of dichotomy of people um, in favor of a multipolar world and people uh, are arguing for a unipolar world doesn't mean that I agree with what these people do in other fields of policy. So when Putin is arguing for a multipolar world, um, which of course is um, against uh, US dominance, um, and seeing China acting in the same way, and this also being kind of the European interests, I mean, a multipolar world, um, doesn't mean that I would agree with the other policies of these states or governments or regimes. So um, um, having said that, I think we have to also not make the mistake of seeing Russia and China as allies. They are not allies. Yeah. Being allies. There's a very, very deep mistrust between these two states. Ever since the Soviet Union, <clears throat> um, and especially under Stalin, pursued a policy that was not in the interest of China. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's something we have to see very clearly. Um, that uh, China has not been they've been driven it. together have they not because I mean the problem with this war in Ukraine is it's sort of catalyzed this fracturing of um, the global yeah. geopolitics and everyone's yeah, now being forced to take sides no but I, I, I even that wouldn't agree with that have not been driven don't they've been pushed together mm. I mean China has not um defended Russia in the Security Council as it has abstained from voting um, that's first thing. The second thing is it has also not condemned the war because China is really between a rock and a half place here. On the one side, what Putin is doing with Ukraine is against everything 
Chinese foreign policy has ever been standing for since 1949. Yeah. It is a war of aggression against the sovereign state. Yeah. It's interference, it's disrespect for sovereignty, it's dis disrespect for territorial integrity. That's what these are the core elements of Chinese foreign policy. So they cannot approve of that. And they cannot only not approve of that in, in what they say, but also in what they do. So they have been not pursuing a lot of weapons and military support, not only because of the West probably would, the West would start sanctions because of that. But I think it's, it's clearly not in their interest. They do not want Putin to win. Mm. And they don't want him to lose that. So they're in the same position as the US backing Ukraine is that they don't want Ukraine to lose, but they're not giving the weapons to allow it to win. But in, in that context of saying it's it's not China's not interested in, in military confrontation, then how do you explain the military buildup in the South China Seas, the Spratly Islands and those reefs and artificial islands? That's been very aggressive and that's very overt. No, it's not it's not it's not very it's not very aggressive. In fact, it's very defensive. Um, you have to put this in perspective. First of all, the claim to this territory is not a claim issued by the government of the PRC. Mm. Back to 1947, the Republic of China, which is now in Taiwan, mm. claimed that territory for China. And China, the PRC, as the inheritor of the status of China, uh, a successor state to the Republic of China, has inherited this claim and is now and has not done much with it until 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, I don't see it as aggressive because we all know that this area, I and mean, people talk about this in terms of resources. I don't think China's going for resources there. Mm. My interpretation is, if you look at the Chinese, if you look at the map of East Asia and you look at the coastline of China, um, you can clearly see China has no direct access to deep ocean. Right. The coastline of China, the waters around China are all very, very shallow. 20 to 80 to 100 meters of depth. Um, the only access they have to a bit of deeper water is when they go from Hainan down south in the South China Sea, and there they have a depth of the ocean of two, 3,000 meters. Mm. And this is where you can hide submarines right. with nukes, which you need for your second strike capacity, which is the core of peace since we have nuclear weapons. That some countries have the ability to survive a first strike, a first nuclear strike, an aggressive first nuclear attack and strike back, which will then basically prevent this from happening in the first place because nobody would dare to attack them. Yeah. And for this, you need to have nuclear arsenal that can be hidden from any from the enemy, that cannot be destroyed in the first attack, the first strike. And for this, you need submarines with nukes deep in the ocean, hidden from the enemy's eyes. And this is why the South China Sea is so important, because if you look at these islands China has occupied and fortified, they form a triangular around the deepest part of the South China Sea. Right. And sorry, and to be clear, you're saying that China doesn't have any deep water ports at the moment or just one very small they one? Don't, they don't have any. Right. 
this is also why Taiwan is important. Taiwan is important for many reasons, but this is one of the reasons why Taiwan is important because Taiwan, at the east coast of Taiwan, in Hualien and in Taitung, they have two ports, two harbors, which are directly next to one of the deepest parts of the of the of the ocean on this planet. So look, again, being ignorant about this and Taiwan is being banded around and everyone's pointing to the, um, what's it, TCSM, uh, the, the semiconductor factory, uh, which is, of course, strategically important for high tech. But I mean, do you think that there's a real chance of uh, China invading or taking, trying to, to, to annex or take back Taiwan? Well, first of all, China doesn't have to annex Taiwan because Taiwan is part of China anyway. Mm. The whole, I mean, this is something that we, we, we have all these very, let's say, popular comparisons between Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan. Mm. And everybody who writes about that in this kind of framing just portrays his or her own ignorance. Taiwan is a part of the PRC. At least 99% of the states on this planet have recognized that. But it's independence. No, it's not. It's not. It is de facto independent, but the euro, it's not independent. All countries having diplomatic relations with the PRC and not with Taiwan, and these are all countries on this planet except nine, are, have recognized in their treaties with the PRC that Taiwan is a part of the PRC. France has, the UK has, the US has, Germany right. has, everybody has recognized in legally binding terms that Taiwan is part of the PRC. Because we had a story in our patch, uh, Lithuania opened, I think it was an embassy there, what, two years ago, and caused a huge hullabaloo, and China complained like hell. But you're saying that's the exception. I mean, that... No, there's, not, there's no embassy in Lithuania. The Lithuanians have upgraded the name of the Taiwan office in Lithuania. There's no embassy. Right. But that they was... Can't call it, they can't call it embassy. That's already enough. The Chinese go, go nuts when they see this happening. They saw this in the Czech Republic also where they are upgrading the names. Here it's called, in Germany, it's called um, Taiwan Representative Office, which is not a diplomatic status. It's mm. a it's a NGO type of kind of business representation. Um, and then you can, of, you can you can change this from, or from, you can add something like uh, whatever, and other thing to it. And then suddenly it is, it sounds a bit more, but even in Lithuania, there is no formal diplomatic recognition of, and they couldn't even recognize Taiwan because Taiwan doesn't exist. There is no Republic of Taiwan. It's called Republic of China. So is an invasion on the cards? Yes. And I think it's possible, but it's not wouldn't very likely. Wouldn't that contradict everything you said about China's attitude to Ukraine, sovereign territory? But I mean, I guess you're arguing, look, this, this actually belongs to us. It's a, it's a separate it is. It is, it is, it's not contradicting uh, the PRC's policy to the Ukraine or any other country, because Taiwan is not another country. Taiwan is a province that belongs to China from the Chinese perspective. Hence, if they would take control over Taiwan by military force, it would be nothing but actually implementing what the euro from the perspective has been and should have been the case ever since 1949, which most of the Western countries have also recognized as being the case. Mm -hmm. The only difference is that most of the Western countries have 
either in writing or in conversations with Chinese leaders uh, been saying that this unification with Taiwan should happen in peaceful means with the consent of the people on Taiwan. And this so is where if that's where the case, then yeah. how can the Americans justify, because they actually came out and much more strongly than with Ukraine, they said, look, we will defend it militarily. We will put troops into Taiwan and yes. fight American soldiers. Yes, um, of course you can do that. I mean, you can you can go back on previous agreements. I mean, treaties can be cancelled, can be can be ignored. I mean, this is um, history is full of that. Um, so um, it is, of course, vital U.S. interest. And now, not speaking from a perspective of a historian, but as a human being, it's also our vital normative interest that Taiwan remains a country that is not forced to join a state or become part of a state it doesn't want to be. So from a Western perspective, um, defending Taiwan's de facto independence is of course in contradiction to our de jure acknowledgement of Taiwan being part of the PRC, but well. So technically under international law, an American military support of what is, as far as the Chinese concerned, the separatist government in Taiwan would be illegal international law wise. Well, with the U US, it's a bit more tricky because the US has never in writing recognized that Taiwan is part of the PRC. Right. The US has recognized that Taiwan is part of China. Right. But Taiwan officially is called Republic of China. Right. So um, this is where the US have been clever. Plus they have uh, on top of that, um, they have, after um, breaking um, diplomatic relations with the Republic of China on Taiwan and starting diplomatic relations with the PRC, um, in the 70s, they have uh, issued a national law called the Taiwan Relations Act, in which they obliged themselves to defend Taiwan with um, su military support, primarily in the form of defensive weapons. Mm. So there's this national law that um, is, has been issued by a, a US administration regulating American relations with um, another part of the world, which officially is part of another state. That's in itself a very interesting construction. So in, by international law, I think it's, it's difficult um, to give a clear answer. But um, for most of the countries in the West, interfering in a military conflict between the PRC and Taiwan would be against the national law. So look, you said um, invasion is possible, but yes. how likely is it? In so much as the little understanding I have of China, that you know, the thing that marks them out is they move incredibly slowly. And is there a way to take Taiwan back into the PRC without military intervention, you know, diplomatically. I don't see that. How could that happen? Well, I think this is um, whoever would be able to answer this question um, uh, in full confidence. Um, this would be uh, that's the multi-million dollar question. Okay. Um, first, I mean, there are so many aspects to it that I wouldn't actually know where to start. Let's start, first start with the fact that in Taiwan, 95% of the population do not want to become part of the PRC. Mm. They didn't want to become part of the PRC before Xi Jinping, but ever since Xi Jinping, uh, it's even it's even clearer that they do not want to become part of that state. 
So I don't see any chance for a integration of Taiwan into the PRC by peaceful means, unless the PRC in the nature of its regime would really change fundamentally. And even then, it would be not easy to really put in action because just imagine, you, you, you know Germany quite well, um, how difficult it has been in the last 30 years, and it's more than 30 years, um, to unify the eastern and the western part of Germany. Mm. No, the the West German annexion of of, <laughs> of East Germany or the East German joining the the the, the Grundgesetz area. Yes. No um, one was happy about that. It has not been very successful, and we just have been apart thirty year thirty years actually, from nineteen sixty one to nineteen ninety. Sixty one, right. the border of the wall was built. Before there was lots of exchange between the East and the West. If you expand it further, there were forty years of of separation. Taiwan has been totally cut off the mainland for 130 years by now. Yeah. So, oh. but if you were so, going to do it, if the military option is the only option, then surely the time is now because, you know, everyone's distracted with the war in Ukraine and actually NATO allies have used up their stockpiles of spare weapons, uh, which they've all given to, to Ukraine, which is about to run out this summer. So the, a second war, an even bigger one with China, which, I don't know, you'd have to either stop Ukraine. I don't see how that works. Well, I, I don't agree with it. I've been reading this in the media uh, quite often, and I don't agree with this argument for a simple reason, because uh, it's not a matter, subduing Taiwan is not a matter of a stockpile of ammunition. Um, the first problem is um, that you have to get across the Taiwan Strait. Mm. Um, that's difficult enough because it's one of the strongest water currents on this planet. There are only two time windows per year where weather actually allows for that, and it's not right now. Um, third, um, even if you started, you, put, you probably would lose 40, 50, 60 percent of your troops and ships before you even get there. Mm. So this is this is itself a huge military challenge and experts. Well, and Taiwan's invested very heavily in defense of that shore, has it not? Yes, so. of, of course, of course they have um, lots of defensive weapons, anti-ship missiles, um, air defense, uh, and so on. Um, and there are only two parts of the west coast of Taiwan where you can actually um, land troops. It's, it's very very difficult. Um, to get there. so it is and if you compare this to d-day um d-day was a piece of cake right uh, taiwan is i mean the the, the the distance between taiwan and the mainland uh, the nature of the waters there the weather there everything is just much more challenging than anything um the allies were facing in june 44. Mm. that's one thing the second thing is if you want to start that, you have to concentrate troops and ships. Our intelligence services would see that half a year before it started. Yeah. And they haven't seen anything so far. So a direct military confrontation in the sense of, in the meaning of attacking Taiwan, trying to take Taiwan is not imminent. Um, as far as I know, at least there has been no report about a concentration of troops that would be of the size needed. But the point is, tricky point is, 
it might not be even necessary to retake Taiwan by landing there and, and, and occupying the island and you just have to cut it off. And this is what they try, what they, what they trained the last time, the last few days. You have to cut the island off. Taiwan has enough oil and gas and whatever resources they need to keep the economy of the country running for two weeks. Right. So it's very simple. You have to cut it off. Of course, whether the West would tolerate that, because these are highly sensitive maritime routes there, supply for Japan, supply for South Korea. I mean, a huge part of global trade is going through the Taiwan Straits and around Taiwan. So it would be a major disruption to global trade and to the global economy. And this is where it gets tricky. People saying right now, this is the opportunity, the golden opportunity for China because the West is distracted. I don't agree. The West is not distracted. On the contrary, this crisis has put Taiwan on our maps. And the West is busy since then calculating the costs of not interfering with a Chinese attempt to take Taiwan. Mm. And the Chinese have to do the same because if they start a military conflict, the West would cut off its relations with China the way it has been trying to do with Russia. Um, the Russians Which would be very painful. I mean, you're talking about a trillion dollars of trade between EU slash US and China, which is by far mm. its biggest trade partner. So the sanctions yes. in China's case extremely effective and china is already in very troubled waters economically speaking mm. they have not been doing well because of the zero recovered policy so china is is from a economic perspective currently not in the position to risk a economic war with the west whether the West would be in the position to launch an economic war against China as they have been launching against Russia. Well, that's another question. I'm not able to answer that. Yeah, but I mean, they... the, the sanctions on Russia have proven to be um, incredibly, well, not ineffective, but I mean, nowhere near as harsh as, as we expected. And the, the Russian economy is basically functioning, largely actually thanks to, to China, India, and keeping the oil um, trade alive. But if, if there were severe the harsh sanctions um, that have been on Russia on China given the weakness of the economy doesn't that mean that China would face possible economic collapse I mean it's, as you say I mean they've got a huge real estate problem um, the the economy is underperforming it's much more vulnerable to sanctions well I am not the person to judge that I don't know but um, if I watch what has been happening with Russia I mean, how effective our sanctions are as contested in the West. I mean, some say they are much more effective than the media are reporting, others are denying that. Whatever they are, they are not producing an immediate result. And the long-term impact we will see in the long-term run. Yeah. Um, with China, it's even more difficult to say because China has lots of internal problems that are not related to the West, like the real issues. But then the West, and especially Europe, and here especially Germany, again Germany, mm. um, has very close economic ties to China. So how the West would react, how our value-guided foreign policy <laughs> would deal with an attack of a communist, allegedly communist, de facto capitalist state on free Taiwan, um, I'm not sure. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet on that. Really, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I want to change direction now a little bit. I mean, we've been talking yes. about current affairs and conflicts and tensions, um, but I'm also trying to understand what China's long-term goals are. And um, this word um, Tian Xia, mm. is that how you pronounce it? Heaven, yes. all under heaven. Um, 
<laughs> coming up. It's like ancient idea, 15th century Ming dynasty. And basically the idea is, as far as I understand it, that we live on a world island and China's at its end and the West is at the other end. And the world is too big and complicated for any one country to control it. And therefore you have to find some sort of harmonious, you know, mutual cooperation. Um, and in practical terms, that means China's been looking uh, the Pacific Rim as its backyard. It now dominates trade, I think, with all the countries around it. And in the second phase, it looks to Eurasia, which it also sees as part of its sphere of influence, if you want to put it that way. And ultimately, it wants to be friends with, these cooperate with Europe. Uh, and that's part of the, um, the idea of the Belt and Road, is to build a land bridge, trade bridge, between China and Asia that avoids going on the sea, partly because the U.S., dominates the maritime trade with its its navy. It, but can you can you explain to me, I mean, the, the whole concept of Tiansha and it is relevant, because I think you don't think it's relevant that it's much more pragmatic. Well, I mean, again, I'm really not an expert on that. There's a person, a professor at the University of Duisburg called Helen Nusselt, and she's written her PhD on that. Hmm. So you should you should get in touch with her. Um I don't take the current discussions in China under the under the heading of Tianxia too seriously on a more than symbolic level. Um, what I have been seeing is not concrete enough to really tell me anything but that they want to challenge um, US um, supremacy. Um, isn't Tianxia all about cooperation, about conceding no, you can't dominate? <clears throat> no, Tianxia initially as a concept is a concept that is uh, perceiving of the world um, as uh, a world centered on the Middle Kingdom, on China. Mm. China is the civilizational model for the rest of the world. And then like with an onion, you have in circles around China countries that are more or less already acknowledging Chinese civilizational supremacy. And these countries who are acknowledging cultural Chinese, uh, Chinese cultural supremacy are then entertaining um, kind of tributary relations with China. And this is how China was regulating what we would call foreign policy for centuries, if not for millennia. But it so, didn't try and conquer those countries, take no, of course, they never tried. tributaries. Yes, they never, they never tried. I mean, China did conquer a lot of territory in the course of its history. Um, and the last editions um, were Xinjiang and Tibet. Um, and before the whole of what is now southern China wasn't Chinese or not, not Chinese in the modern sense of the world. Um, but once they reached that current size, which is which has been reached by the end of the Ming, beginning of the Qing dynasty in the 17th century, there was no attempt at any further expansion. Um, and the countries around China, like Korea and Vietnam uh, and other, underpla other places, were supposed to have tributary relations with um, China, um, paying tribute, symbolic, in return for protection, also by and large symbolic. Hmm. Um, what was to be gained for the tributary states was the um, right to enter trade relations with China, which was very lucrative for them. Hmm. And what, what was gained for China is symbolic status. So Tianxia so was not a model of cooperation, not at all, on the contrary. Tianxia hmm. was a model of symbolic formal subjugation. So to put this into the modern context, again, China is using its trade as its major foreign policy tool in order to establish relationships on economic. But 
would you also describe that as it sees it as a sphere of influence um, or is it purely commercial and that people are going to follow their economic interests and maintain good relations with China if they have a lot of trade? Well, I think we have to see this um, according to which area we're talking about. Um, I think with many parts of the world, it's just trade. It's just business. Um, with some parts of the world, it's trying to secure resources needed for China. So I think if you want to understand Chinese Africa policy, it's about resources. Mm. Um, when we talk about, for example, Southeast Asia, um, Ceylon, um, Cambodia, other parts closer to China, I think it's much more also with, uh, with a clear security policy behind it, creating an environment. Because if you look at China from a military perspective, just imagine you are the commander in chief of the PLA and you look at the map, and you will immediately die of a heart attack because yeah. China is undefendable. I mean, it's a nightmare. It's a total nightmare. If you compare this with the US, which is basically unattackable, China is undefendable. So and to the what Chinese extent then, I mean, the, there's whatever there are, uh, 85 military bases in Japan, there's another 15 in Korea, and Taiwan is obviously a US ally. And so you've got these outposts of US military presence in the Pacific. I mean, is that China unsettling? Of course, a lot. I mean, the, 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 the U.S. has ever since Obama, the Nobel Prize winning, you know, Nobel Prize for Peace winning Obama, pursuing a clear policy of containing China militarily mm. and economically. Um, and of course, this is an American interest. It's, an, it's a clash of interests. The U.S. wants to maintain their hegemony, especially in the Pacific. Um, because they have lots of allies there and um, because of the importance of the Pacific, especially the Western Pacific as uh, in terms of in, in economic terms. If you look at the global GDP and how much of that is produced in countries that are neighboring on the Pacific, then you see this, this is the global economic heart. And the motivation there, the cooperation with the Pacific Rim, the Southeast Asia, I mean, it, it's commercial, but I mean, China doesn't <laughs> have any ambitions. Politically, it doesn't push itself on other countries. It just binds themselves to it by making them dependent on trade. And that sort of encourages, you know, friendly relations. Yeah, but whether this is a policy out of conviction or a policy out of necessity, because they don't have yet the military means to really mm. protect power. Mm. They don't have yet reached a level of economic affluence and stability inside of China to risk rocking the boat. So if you just look at the real estate problems, there, if you look at how difficult it has been for them to upgrade their economy, mm. but to now in some areas quite successful. Um, so in some areas, um, they have reached um, a level of technological um, development, which actually makes them superior to us. Yeah. And I was, I, was, I was participating in a committee meeting of a German government agency where one of the leaders of German research institutions, you know, the DFG, and then you have the Fraunhofer Gesellschaft, the Max Planck Society, you have all these institutions that are heavily uh, investing uh, billions and billions of euro into natural science and uh, research. And this committee meeting was about <clears throat> the China threat and how we deal with it, and whether we can actually afford to cooperate with China, because now you know all these Chinese universities that have links to the PLA, military background, dual use of, of technology, and all that stuff that is in the media. And they've been discussing this, and different opinions have, have been voiced. And then one person in the room um, 
very high in the actually president of a central German research institution said, listen, you are talking about this as if we do have a choice. With, if we cut ties with China in terms of scientific cooperation, from whom do we learn that? Mm. So this was a natural scientist person. And of course, this was probably only applying to maybe physics or chemistry, I don't know. But it's very clear China has reached a, a level of technological and scientific development where it is very advanced. But still, if you look at the distribution of wealth in China, if you look at economic problems, if you look at security issues also in terms of research, uh, the old COVID thing, um, it's quite clear by now. I think that this was a, a mistake, an accident happening. We were, we were just trying, writing about solar panels and um, they were yeah. saying that <laughs> solar panels are way ahead, both in terms of technology and manufacturing capability. Yes. Um, yes. And they, they can um, kill us on that one. In spite of all of that, China has huge problems. So um, whether they are out of a normative conviction, not pursuing a more aggressive security policy in the in Southeast Asia, uh, or whether they are just not yet capable in their own self-perception of doing that, I don't know. We will find out. They're not if ready. If they will act like the US did, then the aggression will follow soon. So look, you, you mentioned onion skins, and um, the next one out is Eurasia, so, you know, into Afghanistan, Central Asia. And there specifically, the um, Chinese are talking about the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Yes. And Putin just released a new foreign policy concept, and you know, he's got the Eurasia Economic Union, and the two of them overlap in Central mm -hmm. Asia. And obviously, mm -hmm. Russia wants that southern route out because it can't export to the West anymore. And it yeah. went through Central, Central Asia into, into Southeast Asia, Pakistan, India to begin with. Um, yes. But it's all bottled up by Afghanistan and the instability. But again, yes. Putin specifically mentioned the SCO in his foreign policy concept. <laughs> and it seems to me that China in the next stage will also be focusing very much on Eurasia and developing that. And the Belt and Road project has been building infrastructure through that region. Yes. But how, how important is that to China and like how far progressed has it got? And, and what is the relationship between the EEU and the SCO? I don't know. I'm sorry. This is, this is too far away from my turf. Mm. Um, I do see in the European developments of the last few months, a clear awareness of, with regard to China, not following the US policy. Because China, the US is doing whatever they can to not grant China a chance to perform the peacemaking role, peacemaking function in that conflict with, with, between Russia and the Ukraine. They want them out. And they, they don't miss any chance they have, any opportunity they have um, to provoke China. Be it that Tsai Ing-wen meets with somebody in the US, be it that Pelosi goes to Taiwan, they, that they're doing what they can to keep the tension high be between the US and China. And it's obvious that Europe is, in spite of its value-guided foreign policy, is not doing that. Mm. The official media kind of, of course, condemn China, it's, it's a dictatorship, and so on. But if you look what um, European industry is doing, trade is going up. With China. Trade is going up. Um, our positions go to China in a, a bi-weekly rhythm. Mm. Um, so, it's obvious. 
So how, 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 do, how important is that direction? Because again, I mean, from my perspective, you know, in Eastern Europe, um, what the major change has been this Belt and Road and China pushing into Central Asia and investing and also in the Balkans and also in Central Europe, although slightly different than more commercial battery factories. But um, isn't this actually the same mistake the Russians made, which was like 70% of the energy in infrastructure went to Europe? And China looks like it's, it's investing very heavily over the long term in order to build better ties with this access to Europe, overland, avoiding the sea. Yeah, um, but not, and that makes it more, and more, more vulnerable to sanctions, doesn't it? Yes and no, because China is, of course, not putting all their eggs into one basket. They are not as stupid as we were in the 90s um, and the first decade of this century, where we basically um, put all our, our eggs into the China basket. Um, they are heavily investing in Africa. They're heavily investing in Southeast Asia. Um, I mean, Sri Lanka, um, Cambodia, Thailand, you name it, huge yeah. investments. Um, so, uh, of course, Europe for them is a very, very important market. Um, <clears throat> and this is another reason why they are very much interested in peace in, uh, in Eastern Europe, because um, part of their uh, trade connections to Europe are going through Ukraine. It's the, it's the, railway, it's the railroad connection that's going mm -hmm. through Next to that, um, China has heavily invested into agriculture in Ukraine. I mean, China cannot feed its own people anymore. So they have to import grain on, in, in large numbers. And, and, and part of that, of course, coming from Ukraine. So China has a lot of <clears throat> clear interest in getting in finishing this and in stopping and ending this conflict. Um, and in a way that prevents Russia from disintegrating. Right. Um, and that is, I, I think that um, a, a connect a, a strong dependency, or let's say some dependency on the European market and connections to Europe. Well, whether you're dependent or not, and whether you're vulnerable to sanctions, of course, depends on how you distribute your your investments. And I think yeah. here China is pursuing a clear policy of not being too dependent on one area only. Yeah. On that note, um, we've run out of time. I'd like to thank you very much. Um, yes, let's hope there's peace. Uh, I think everybody wants it except Putin. Um, and the, if China could play a role in that, that would be great because this war is atrocious. It's caused so much pain and damage. Um, once again, thanks for taking the time. It was very interesting. Thank you. And for those of you out there, um, again, please, um, you can visit us at pne.eu slash welcome. Um, there'll be a copy of this um, interview there and also on our podcast page and link to that on the welcome page. And if you're interested in this sort of thing, we write about it daily, you can take a trial to our pro service, uh, two weeks to see um, this in detail. And of course, um, you can visit our site. And I recommend um, you sign up to Editor's Picks, which is a free daily email of our best stories in the last 24 hours. Again, you can find a link to that on bne.eu slash welcome. Once again, Axel, thank you very much. Thank Hope you. All the best. See you. Bye-bye.